are we okay with the brokenness that exists there? Like actual brokenness, not like, oh, little cracks in the, in the infrastructure. No, like broken open. Like things are just all jacked up. They're, they're mangled. The wires are exposed. The, mm-hmm. the secrets are out. Like things are just not okay. How do we reconcile with that? How do we how do we get to know that? Beyond Ourselves is a podcast where I, Taylor Camille, share stories by those living a life fully and beyond any stigma or perceived limitations a health condition may have on their day-to-day lives. For season two of this series, we're highlighting stories from Black men. The stigmas around caring for their health and bodies beyond fitness and examining masculinity. As always, please share and subscribe if you haven't already. Today, we're speaking with Sinclair Caesar about his journey with bipolar disorder. An estimated 2.3 million Americans have the disorder. And while the rates of bipolar disorder is the same amongst Black Americans as is amongst other Americans, Black Americans are less likely to receive a diagnosis and therefore treatment for this illness. Our conversation was long. (laughs) It killed me to cut some of these gems that Sinclair was dropping or these jokes. Um, Perhaps there's a world I'll release uncut versions so you won't miss out on the kikis or commentary from Sinclair or any of our other guests. But we talk about the word bipolar. You know, obviously a lot of us probably associate that with Kanye West. We talk about policing the word and whether it feels uncomfortable to confront people when they use a word about a condition they know near nothing about. Although Sinclair is a mental health advocate, I do know that he has a future in stand-up comedy because the way he drops these jokes, as you'll hear, is just too much. I think there's a lot of solid takeaways from this conversation, and I hope you'll enjoy. So, here's Sinclair. So, hi, I'm Sinclair. I'm a mental health writer, mental health speaker. I'm also a higher education professional. And I'm currently based in San Antonio, Texas. A lot of my work is around storytelling, truth telling, and really working to end mental health stigma in a way that is personable, in a way that is bringing you into a particular story, a particular vignette to have you go, oh, wow, like this sounds like me. This sounds like somebody I know. And anytime I can have opportunity to, to share part of my story, part of my truth to help somebody feel less shame and less guilt, I I find that that is just 100% part of my life's purpose because a lot of us are living with a lot of shame and guilt, especially when it comes to to mental illness. Yeah. And I think the first article I found of yours before I even found your full portfolio was the article you were talking about bipolar disorder shown in Insecure and how you kind of related to that. And I thought, that was amazing because your commentary on it was so just rich. What prompted you? I mean, you've been writing about bipolar for a long time, but what made you, you know, bridge that gap and talk about that? You know, so I was I was diagnosed in twenty. Sorry, I went through my first manic episode in twenty eighteen, and in twenty nineteen I was diagnosed. And ever since then, to see yourself anywhere, to see myself anywhere especially on HBO, like late right. at night on a Sunday and be like, wait a minute, what? This character's bipolar disorder. And the episode ends and I'm like, wait, what just happened? I got a problem. Like, don't play with me like this. Don't, don't mess with my life. And so like to just have that happen is just because we don't, we don't have it a lot. We don't have 
especially so that episode was was a big deal because Nathan's character, the way they, they they've shared his story and they they shared some you know key factors, key indicators of bipolar disorder, was just I, I would say somewhat masterful because it was smooth. Mm-hmm. It wasn't in your face. It wasn't all one episode. It was over a period of time, and he's a black man you know, living on the, the West Coast. And he's in, I would imagine, like, 30s. And, you know, he's like me. And he's just mm-hmm. doing, doing his life. And all of a sudden, this thing comes up. He doesn't quite know what it is. And it's starting to impact his relationships. And then it happens to impact a relationship with somebody he truly cares about, Issa. And now he's deciding to, to talk about it. He's back. He's deciding to talk about it. And I'm like, mm-hmm. yo, like, we're in the very similar places. And so the article pretty much wrote itself. I just had right. to talk about it. And I also wanted to capitalize on a moment where bipolar disorder was being shared in a way where the disorder was humanized. Because mm-hmm. the opposite of that is any other story, any other narrative around Black people, especially when it comes to mental illness and when it comes to Kanye West. And what, what right. is that? That's all we have. We're like, oh, bipolar disorder? That's Kanye, right? And it's like, no, that's not Kanye. <laughs> <laughs> like, not kind of, it's bipolar yeah. and yeah. West has told us that he he lives with it and also there's a billion other people who who live with mental illness in general but there's a lot of black people living with mental illness period and it's the narrative around it, his disorder is just so it's just so terrible and it's so one-sided mm-hmm. and it's like have y'all not heard of nuance before in y'all lives right Right. And I actually recently wrote about that. And and so it's like to hear something be like, okay, this guy's got this thing. Let's talk about it. I know he's a fictional character, but he feels as real as day like that. I just had to write about it. Yeah, for sure. You wrote about that dinner party you were at where your friends brought up Kanye. And it's like, I'm sure you can't even get through an interview without people bringing up Kanye and (laughs) like, I mean, those are real feelings, you know, those are, I, I think what spoke out to me when you wrote about it at the dinner party was that these were friends that knew about your manic episode in 2018 that were talking about this celebrity. Maybe, you know, they, they wouldn't have such harsh words to say about you because they know you personally, but still identifying with someone who's going through this and, you know, kind of being a fly on the wall or feeling that feeling of being a fly on the wall and like wondering, well, what, what in the hell did y'all say about me when you knew I was going through it? And like, that really spoke out to me because it plays into everything you think about when you think about wanting or building up the courage to disclose what you're going through, mm-hmm. right? And how it's going to be received. But you did mention that you mentioned, what did you mention? Something about the key the key points of bipolar or the key, yes. like the hallmarks of it. Mm-hmm. And I wanted, if you could list or describe what those are or, you know, what are kind of traits of bipolar disorder yeah so you know i think a lot of people say this right i've especially heard other people say this in your podcast like i'm not i'm not the expert i'm not a medical professional i'm not but people need to know how to talk about this right Mm -hmm. and so if you were to talk to a psychiatrist or a therapist they would tell you that it's a it's a mood disorder it was formerly called manic depressive illness or manic depression and Mm -hmm. there's many different ways in which it manifests it could be bipolar one which is you have these super high highs and then one day you just crash and then you have like the super low lows. So when people are like, I'm so manic right now, I'm like, or I'm so bipolar, I'm so bipolar right now. They're typically saying like, you know, I'm either on a real high or real low, which is mm-hmm. quite disparaging to people who actually live with this 
disorder. Right. And so here are some, some of the hallmarks of it. There's changes in mood, changes in energy, and changes in activity level. And so, you know, you might feel like you can do like 80 billion things at once and you're not getting any of them done well, but you're just doing 80 billion things at once. There's a lot of reckless behavior that's attached to it, whether that's between like that's regarding money, spending tons of money, sex, having like multiple sex partners like out of nowhere. I mean, you've seen that a lot in that, the character in Homeland. That's just mm-hmm. the show that people used to, to love watching. The main character would just have random sex partners out of nowhere. And then there's also just risky behavior, like going into a car and speeding or traveling to different countries. There's one person who sold their house while they were manic. And then the depressive symptoms are just terrible. It's like walking through wet cement is how I would explain it. Um, mm-hmm. And so there's a there's actually a some kind of, there's like an imagery that I like to provide around it. And so it's kind of like playing Mario Kart, right? So you're playing Mario Kart and you're like doing your thing and then you come up to a ramp. And then once you hit the ramp initially, that's hypomania. So you're starting to rev up. You're like, okay, here we go. About to, about to you know, hit this ramp. It's like, let's go. And then you hit the ramp and like you're up into the air and you're, and you're flying high. And that's mania. You're like at the top. And then all of a sudden you just like, you just hit the ground and you know how Mario Kart is where you just like crash, you tumble, you swivel out of control. It's like, <laughs> but like, this is like what's your life. So it's like to your finances, right? And to your relationships. Yeah. Absolutely yeah. terrible. And, and then you just wipe out and then the depression hits. And that's like the end of the race, right? Like, like you, you lost, like you, you, like you don't come back. Um, yeah. You know, hopefully you do. And so one of the tricks of mania is that it's this high that you want to get back again. But once you've done more research on it, which thankfully I have and having a very supportive wife to talk to me about it, it's like, no, every time you go through a manic, a manic episode, you know, parts of your brain are destroyed. Like you don't get those parts mm-hmm. back. Mm. Right. Like I'm not a brain surgeon, but I'm sure a brain surgeon would tell you, like, yes, it messes up your head, bro. <laughs> like you don't want to go through right. this. And so right. in addition to your finances being messed up, in addition to your, you know, your your body being messed up, your relationships are in absolute shambles because a lot of people experience a high level of irritability. So they are starting fights with people left and right. Sometimes there can be psychosis that accompanies it. And that could be anywhere from thinking that you have magical powers to thinking that you are rich to actually starting to hear voices. And so sometimes mm-hmm. bipolar disorder is misdiagnosed schizophrenia. Um, right. So like bipolar one is the high highs and the low lows. And it's like really high, really low. And then bipolar two is more of a kind of a cycling thing where you're going between depressive and hypomanic episodes, but you don't have like a super big crash. But it's important to note that there's still research being done on this disorder. There's still some gaps to fill in. We, If you ever look at a, a book and go, okay, wow, we used to call this one thing back in the day. Now we call it this particular disorder. Things are constantly changing and evolving as we mm-hmm. make advances in medicine. Not me, the people who do that. And uh, <laughs> in the lab. I'm in the lab, yo, you know me. You know, but This is what happens. I wanted to get back in the driver's seat um, Mm -hmm. and I wanted to live and I wanted to thrive for the sake of my daughter and my wife. And so it was like, yo, you gotta start to become an expert on your, on this illness that you live with so that you can live. And so that doesn't have power over you because when there's mystery, there's anxiety. 
and when, right. when there's mystery, there is taking steps that aren't super helpful and that are actually quite debilitating. A lot of people will self-medicate um, when they have this disorder unknowingly when they have this disorder and it actually exacerbates the issue. So for me to go out and drink, for me to go out and, and do drugs, it actually makes it much worse. And that's what you'll see a lot of. You'll see a lot of that, or you'll see some high rates of individuals dying by suicide, which people will say they succumb to their illness, which is like the most devastating result, which it's hard, right? Because I think that's a devastating result. I also think that being alive while a lot of your relationships have died away, while they've been ruined, that's also terrible as well. It's like I'm living, but I'm invisible in plain sight. And and that's that, that's a lot of suffering in that as well. Yeah. You talk about often how you feel like after that episode, you know, your life was inflamed. You lost friends, you lost your finances, you like lost your savings. So how do you regroup after that? You know, when there's like ashes left, how do you pick that up? I think what this year has taught me a lot of is that like, we don't have control of much of anything, right? And so as you do try to seek how to manage this and how to kind of be in the driver's seat and know what things trigger it or know, you know, what substances exacerbate it. How do you put it all back together when you have that intense feeling that you burned it all down, that, you know, people abandoned you, that you, you know, you have to start over again? Yeah, you, you get to the truth. <laughs> that's, the, that's, the, that's the quickest way. I, I, I'm a person uh, of faith. I am Christian. Um, not the white evangelical kind or the uh, everybody going to hell kind. <laughs> I'll let that be known. For... Don't don't shut down just yet. Oh, he Christian. All right, well, peace. <laughs> let me tell you something. I could. That's a whole conversation right there. Yeah. Faith yeah. and mental illness and being thirty. Mm-hmm. Especially as faith starts to come. It's like, wait, what? What do I believe? Especially since I went to college and I took that philosophy class. But truth, right? So that's, I mean, honestly, that's the heart of it, right? So like for me, it was, what's real anymore? It's the worst thing in the world to go through a situation and then wake up and be like, wait a minute, was that real or was that a dream? And then (laughs) for this situation, it was just... Not knowing what to believe, but also not remembering everything that happened because there's just so many holes. My wife would be like, remember you used to do this and you used to do that? And I'm like, what? I did what? And she's like, yeah, you used to do all these things. And I'm like, was this before the manic episode? Because I've like kind of forgotten. And she's like, oh, yeah, that was like several years ago. And I'm like, not me forgetting things that happened in my marriage um, or forgetting times we've had like vacations, you know, anniversaries or whatever. And then the other side of that is... You know, can I can I trust God? What is the God that I know? What is even faith? Because when I was going through my manic episode, I believed that I was like, I had a God Messiah complex. Not that I was God or not that I was like Jesus, but like I was a Messiah. Like I was here to help people. I was going through great a great deal of pain, and my sacrifice was going to save people, and not like up on a cross. Just like for example, anything that would happen to me, I would rationalize it and go, well. This is what happens to the chosen one, which is dangerous to rationalize so many bad things happening to you and going, but I'm the chosen one, right? So like getting in arguments with people and being like, oh, this is undue criticism. They're getting upset with me because I'm like, you know, leaving my family behind and traveling across the world or 
spending all this money and going, well, it'll come back in my bank account. And then it would. I would take out a loan or I would get a credit card. And I'm like, look at that. I got money now. Or people would send me money because they felt bad. And so those, a, lot, a lot was happening that was untrue. And when I, I say when I got back, when I got back, somebody told me something like, you'll never be forgiven. And we're just waiting to see if we'll trust you. You'll never be forgiven. And one, why would you ever tell this to somebody? Why would you ever tell somebody that they're never going to be forgiven? Who are you to say that? And who is we? We are waiting to trust, see if we can trust you again. Who? I guess, hey, you surprised me. I guess you, you, you read minds now. Did you take a, did you take a poll? <laughs> did you do it for the next election? Like, do you know what's going to happen? Help a brother out. The way I bring in comedy is so random. Uh, But no, it's like, so like, I'm like, okay. So it sent me in this huge shame spiral. I just, I just hit, I hit, I hit a bottom. I didn't know was there. And I felt like there's no point of being here. There's no point of being, there's no point. Like, I'm not going to be loved again. People don't care about me. I can clearly remember driving my daughter. I'm so glad that we're talking about this. I remember driving my daughter home from her story time at the library and while I was driving her home, I, I metacognitively thought, wait a minute, I'm going to be telling this story one day. So let me hold on to this moment, even though it's terrible. So I was driving my daughter home, thinking about how I'm going to, I need to tell somebody this one day about what I'm going through. And I was driving her home and I was going, oh my gosh, it feels like, it feels like I'm not supposed to be here. It feels like I don't deserve another chance. It, but more so, it feels like no one's ever going to really love me or trust me again. Because my manic episode was online. It was on social media. It went viral. My blog entry went viral. The place where I worked before, like, it was just all a huge mess. Like, it was just terrible. So I'm like, I'm never going to get hired in higher education again. I'm never, like, people people aren't going to love me anymore. Like, I had friends that I've known for a long time that blocked me on Facebook. I was wondering why the page wouldn't load. And then apparently it means you're blocked. And one day I was driving by myself, just by myself. And I was like, it would be so great if there's a, a truck like one of them big trucks could just just hit me enough to just like end my life and no one else gets hurt. And I told this to my wife and she said, do you know what happened if that happened? She said, you know that you would leave a dad sized hole in the life of your daughter. Mm-hmm. And do you know that I would be completely devastated? I can't even explain to you, describe to you how devastated I would be. Because when you were out there across the, you know, across the world, I didn't know that if I was going to get a call that something happened to you and that you weren't coming back or we just wouldn't know because I was in Costa Rica at one point. It's like, I didn't know if you're coming back. And so that became the truth. That, that was the truth because I think there's a difference between what's true to you and then what's actually true. And what was the truth was that my life was not over, that I, that I do have worth. And for me, it was like, yo, God put me here. I have worth. I, I got a reason. I have a reason to be here. And so what continued to pull me out of that was a therapist that continued to remind me to ask myself, is this true? Whenever something would happen, whenever a thought would come up, which is helpful for anything, but definitely helpful for me as I was navigating shame. And another thing that helped me was to get back into the word. And so like I I really got into the story of Job, which is really messed up. And so like, Basically, for me, it was like, okay, so Job is this guy in the Bible. Everything got taken away. People that he loved died. All his property, like, just completely destroyed. And I was like, oh, this is it sounds like me. Except for in this case. Yeah, except for this case, devil was like, God, 
see me, son. See me. I bet there's nobody. <laughs> I bet there's nobody on earth, right? That can like it's just like uncorruptible. Like see me, and God was like, you see my, you see my man Job over there. And maybe in like several hundred years, my man Sinclair. <laughs> so no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> but like that happened to Job. His life was completely like destroyed. And yeah. and everything was taken away. And his wife was like, yo, curse God, right? Like, like, look at what he did to you. And what Job did was curse the day he was born. He didn't want to be here anymore. And so then at the end of the story, spoiler alert for a 2,000-year-old story, um, <laughs> Job... <laughs> No, like Job ends up getting everything back and like like a hundredfold, like everything back, just like times a billion. But before he could get everything back, one, he had a whole showdown with God, and God was like, "Why would you question me? Like you weren't there when I created this, that, and the third. Like, how, like who do you think you are to question me?" And also, while you added Job, I want you to go back and forgive everybody that said mean things to you or said terrible things to you when you were going through the worst hell of your life. And I read the story, and I was like. Oh, no, he didn't. No, God wasn't like, yo, you gotta go hell back and free. Right? Like, <laughs> what in hell is wrong with you? What pastor be doing the curse? What in hell? And I was like, what in hell is wrong? And and it was just such a it was such a moment to be like, yo, this is how small I am. This is how big guy is and also like wait a minute I do have some work to do so the other thing in addition to asking myself what's what's true embracing truth being anchored by the love of my wife and my daughter and the people who started to come out of the woodworks people who have been there all along but have been like supporting me praying for me thinking about me in the background what also helped was to (laughs) do the hard work of apologizing to people even though I didn't do any of this on purpose. I did it. So right. I started the process of making amends, which was like, yo, I did X, Y, and Z. I am sorry. I take full responsibility for that. By the way, if you didn't know, I have this disorder. Just to let you know, and that I was going through a manic episode at that time. I, I, I hope you are well. And that's it. And like, that was like, that was terrible. It was a terrible process because I never knew what the person was going to say back if they were going to respond they were going to go i don't care about your apology and your bs like you did X, y, and B, and I don't care about your mental like you know, like i didn't know what was going to happen and right. so but like it helped me to get to a place where i could truly start to take responsibility for myself and for my actions and for my in a lot of ways for my disorder that i live with and to kind of come back to like something that i never had before which was just more wholeness as a person. Um, And now I'm not doing it for myself or doing it to prove anything to anybody. Now it's like, I want to make it so, so my wife and I want to make it so that our children's children benefit from the actions that we take. And a lot of that's going to start with me taking care of my mental health. And so that's kind of like from there to, to here. To now. Yeah. You said your daughter is 19 months, right? Mm-hmm. I think you briefly mentioned this in another interview, but I think about, you know, how mental illness is or is not talked about growing up in Black households. How, you know, I think you said something like some things are just not other people's business and the shame and then the clouding of that and keeping things under wraps. But I imagine 
as your daughter grows and as your family grows, that's not going to be how you enter these conversations and how you present your mental illness to them. So I'm just thinking, like, how do you have you thought about that? Like your plan to explain, you, you know, this part of you to your daughter or future children? Yeah, it's, I think it feels more complicated than it is and that it needs to be. And I think it speaks right. to the stigma around this disease. It's like, yo, when you gonna tell your daughter that you like blew up five countries? And that's like, I didn't blow up five countries. <laughs> like, I didn't do that. I didn't do that. <laughs> I'm like, yo, when you gonna tell your daughter that you're really a wizard? I'm not a wizard. Like, it's like <laughs> I just live with a mental illness and like bad yeah. things happen. <laughs> It's like, wait, it's all this buildup, right? And I think, well, but the other, here's the thing. What I'm learning is that children are not what I thought they were. Like, I thought that 19 months was like, you know, daddy, feed me, you know, like just very basic things. She is already so much more advanced than I, than I ever thought possible. And she has yeah. two parents as educators. So we like try to give her the world when it comes to, you know, brain and cognitive and social development. And so she's watching, she sees me take my medication, right? You know, it would be a part of our, it's a part of our lexicon, like the word therapist, you know, the word psychiatry, right? So she's gonna know all that. And so to say, I live with, you know, what's this thing called? I can, to put a name to it, you know, bipolar disorder, that will be helpful to to share with her. So I think what, I guess what I'm trying to say is that it's just gonna, it's gonna come about naturally along the way. Um, It won't be a surprise. Because it's always, it kind of always will be there. I would hope mm-hmm. that foundationally, my daughter knows that she can trust us. My daughter knows who we are. She knows the truth that we love her, that we are people, that we are broken, that we are human. And then there's also space for, for reconciliation and restoration because things are going to go bad. There's going to be things that we do that are well intentioned. That's not going to be great for our daughter. Like I don't like. There's so much that happens with our parents that that was, that was well meaning that they do that has a negative impact on us. So maybe this won't be the thing. Maybe her finding this out, maybe her dad being a mental health speaker won't be the most embarrassing thing for her in school. Like, oh, your dad's the crazy one? Like, maybe at that point, people will be like, your dad's a mental health speaker? Oh my gosh, can I meet him? Oh my, that's so amazing. Like, the way things are going now, like with this generation, right? It's like, oh my Mm -hmm. gosh, he talks about what? Wow. It'll be more of an embrace and less of an anomaly, I'm hoping. Exactly. So like, there is a... There's a reason that this that this disorder is stigmatized, like many other mental illnesses, and that and it does go back to that question of can I trust you? I mm-hmm. think the better question is, what are you doing in terms of wellness, right? Like instead of saying, "When's the last time you took your meds?" or "Are you sure you're good?" or "You going to therapy?" right? Just ask them, like, "What are you doing for wellness?" In general, that being a question people ask, period, it can just bypass all the mess that comes with living with the disorder, and I can say, "Okay, okay. this is what my." plan is, this is what I do, worst case scenario, these are the mechanisms that will kick into place. And this is how I can work full time and be trusted with X, Y, and Z, you know, work through that doubt. That's kind of how you you fight it. And for me, the way I work through that doubt every day is going, yo, maybe somebody will find out that I have this or this thing happened to me, but I can say one, only God can judge me, right? Like Ja Rule. Mm-hmm. And I can also be like, you know, I'm taking care of myself. These are things I'm doing. This is all in front of you. Let me put the question back on you. What are you doing for those things that we don't know about? Right? Like, exactly. I mean, I think that was a great question. Like, what are you doing for wellness? You know, everyone is always like, you should interview the person that's interviewing you when you're looking for jobs or whatever. 
but how do you navigate the, the work world and how do you, <laughs> you know have these conversations with employers because i don't think that everyone is mm. as caring as they need to be there's not you don't need to be sensitive i think it's just like have genuine care <laughs> about people's well-being and i think that's absent in in workplaces well if i can get fake deep for a second it's the way it's, it's because of the way oppression is set up it's because of the way power uh manifests within the systems that we've set up and the structures that we set up right because it's like dang this is this is a wet it's a web of mess. Like, how do you say, hey, guys, I'm not feeling well. <laughs> like, I need to take a picture yeah. of day. And your boss will be like, okay, well, that sounds good to me. Come back tomorrow when you feel refreshed. <laughs> <laughs> why can't I just, why can't that happen? Why can't my boss just be like, oh, you know, we got this bottom line. But really, if you guys are all refreshing at your best selves, we're going we're gonna to bypass that by like a million gazillion. So y'all do what y'all need to do. Let's just all have a conversation. Let's just keep the lines of communication so like a healthy relationship would be. Like, why isn't it like that, right? For all those reasons, right? And so for me, <laughs> one thing that helped me to even apply to jobs, because I do have a full-time job working at, a, working at an institution. I was like, well, first of all, I'm Black. So if this, <laughs> if I'm ever applying for a job, and in America, and you know, there's a lot of there's a lot of white spaces in America. I mean, look at the statistics. Country at 13% black, right? Like a lot of white spaces. I'm already black, so there, people are already bringing their biases to the table with just that. Okay, right. now bringing mental health, it's like, oh man, oof, this guy. What are we gonna do with him? And so yeah. for me, it's just like own it. Like when you own your stuff, can nobody tell you nothing? Right. And so when I go into places for an interview, like recently, I'm glad you asked it because it's fresh. I was interviewing them 1000%. I already know that I'm a great candidate. I already know what skills I possess. I know exactly what you're asking for for this job. I know that I know the places where I don't have any knowledge, i.e., how things work there, the culture, what things I can't expect, how we're going to navigate this, these unprecedented times, the pivoting that we'll need to do, what the actual budget numbers are. Because I've worked in similar places, I have whatever experience I have, but can I show up as myself while I'm there? And I got to figure all that out. I'm choosing to figure all that out without telling you anything about me. I'm not going to tell you my mental illness because I'm stable enough to work here. So for me, it's like, am am I going to be able to take time off? What are the benefits like? What's the work culture like in terms of like expectations? Do you want us to be working overnight or all weekend? Like those things are big for me because if I don't get enough sleep, if I'm not present with my family, if I'm not able to take time to go to therapy or to go to the doctors, because you know, I have to manage managing your physical wellness is it all works together in terms of managing your mental wellness. If I can't do those things, then I'm not gonna be able to show up to my life. And I'm spending most of my time at work. So if you don't have right. opportunities for those things, then like on Shark Tank, I'm out. I, I don't wanna yeah. I don't wanna do it. I can't do it. Yeah. And so, yeah. like, for me, like, I'm at the point right now, and I guess maybe it's young, and maybe it's my male privilege, but, like, at 33, if I don't think too deeply into it, I'm at the point right now with all things considered where I am investigating any situation I'm going to go into where things are potentially unclear, but the stakes are high because I'm spending a lot of time there, and where I'm going to be is going to impact every facet of my life. So it's really right. important to interrogate, investigate, be thorough, and to not shy away from that and be kind with it. Not like, I know, I know you got questions for me, but uh, what's up with y'all? <laughs> like, wanna, that's not the best way to go into an interview. <laughs> <laughs> Enough about me. What's happening here? 
<laughs> I saw you were late to this interview. Right here, we just strolling late to interviews, huh? You're interviewing me. I'm the candidate. I was on time. Okay, you have to switch from mental health speaker, or you need to get another hobby and do stand up comedy because the way that you dropping these jokes, I really am done. I'm done. Yeah. No, yeah, I, 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 I attribute that to just doing improv. I, I've done improv. Yeah, okay, years. that makes sense. Yeah, makes so sense. which is which has been which has actually contributed to my healing. But thank you for that. That is a compliment. Thank you. <laughs> I gotta stop myself. <laughs> what is she really saying? Oh, it's a compliment. Just say thanks. Don't explain it. Yeah, nope. It's just a symbol. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> oh my god. <laughs> I, I wanted to bring up you, you mentioned at the beginning or towards the beginning, you know, people cavalierly saying, I'm so bipolar, I'm so manic, or all these things that we just slip off of our mouths. But I wondered, do you correct people when you hear them say it, if they say it in your company? Or what language should people, I'm not making, I don't want to make you like the spokesperson, but if you do have any ideas of language around what are alternates that we could say in instead of she's so bipolar or I feel bipolar or all these things are not what we actually mean. I guess you could just say I'm I'm moody or I'm I don't know. I just think about like how to change language is so important. So I'm just thinking of like alternatives people could say and why we why we default to hmm. an actual condition. <sighs> That's a I feel like fake deep is my alter ego. I'm like, well um you know what we what we really need to do is ask ourselves, what do we know about this disorder? What is, what is, why are we saying the words that we say? Words do hold power. No, words hold power. I struggle with it. I struggle with some people call tone policing, some people call it like just mm-hmm. word policing in general. Because mm-hmm. then I feel like all it does is make people go, well, I guess I can't do that. Like if someone tells you that you can't drink soda, what you going to do? You're going to go out and buy like a six pack of 7-Up if you're black, Sprite. And you're going to just, that's what you're going to do, right? You're going to make you want to do it more or you're going to kind of get rebellious around it. And I have a hard time with hand tapping is what I call it, or like leg tapping. Like I yeah. I think for me, so I, when I started improv back up last October, I realized how much people were using the word crazy. That's the word for me. That's a word for a lot of people in the mental health community who are like, that word, that word sets them off. It's like triggering. It feels terrible. And that mm-hmm. word right there, I... <laughs> I would argue that that's where we got to talk about the word crazy. Mm-hmm. Like, that's so crazy. Like, that's fine. Okay, that's crazy. Yeah, maybe that is crazy. You know, there's a lot of words you can say for that. But when somebody's like, yo, you acting crazy right now? Or you acting like you're off your meds right now? Or you acting like out of your mind right now? Those things can be used um, to gaslight. And what I like to say now, because I saw it on Twitter, they're like, no, sometimes it's not gaslighting. Sometimes it's just lying, right? Yeah. Like, like making a person feel like what they're feeling isn't true or what they're experiencing isn't true and completely invalidating their feelings. So that right there is a, is a bigger push for me when a person is addressing someone as something like that, because it leaves no room for that person to be anything. You might as well just suck up your emotions and go somewhere else. Like you might as well right. just, right? Like you're going to just suffer now. Like those are hallmarks mm-hmm. of an abusive relationship, maybe in like the early stages or maybe later on, but like those things aren't cool. And I think a lot of people can resonate with that. I think when people say things like that's, you know, I'm, I'm so bipolar right now, I feel like, I honestly feel like a lot of ways we don't have a great grasp of different words to use sometimes. I think mm-hmm. also sometimes we're just real chill, like we don't want to think about the best word to use. So like I try to be like an English major with it, but I also do think that 
you asking that question is a, it's a great calling. It's a great calling to say, hey, we need to learn more about this disorder. Because I don't think people know what it is. People don't even know what bipolar disorder is. They don't know. So people are like, I'm, t- I'm so bipolar. This, or, I'm so bipolar right now. I want to be like, what do you think that means? Like, what do you think you're saying right now? Like, do you like, yeah. what do you think that means? Or like, I'm so, I'm so ADD right now. Or I'm so, what's yeah. the other one where they're like trying to be like, oh, I'm so OCD. Right. And it does, it does, a lot of people do feel hurt by that. And I think it aligns mm-hmm. well with like what terms around women. Right. right. Like the same thing with any any class of people who has been marginalized. We use different words in a, in a way that kind of throws away that person and we don't think about it. Right. And so when it manifests to like even a light, I'm so bipolar right now, got to ask yourself, where is this really coming from? What do we need to how can we attack this at its root? And I think is by being educated, having more experiences with people that aren't like us, that don't live with the same experiences as us. And then most of all, ally or not, just shutting up and listening because mm-hmm. that keeps us from learning. That keeps us from being empathetic. That keeps us from people. Yeah. Yeah. So this season, obviously, I'm talking to Black men. And when I was diving into this, I'm like asking my male friends, where do you go for men's health You know, resources? Or like, where do you go? Like, where are y'all vulnerable? (laughs) Like, where do you allow yourselves to really like express yourself? Where do you have these discussions? And a lot of them were just like, "Mm, I don't really know if we do. I mean, it's inspiring that you were able to learn how to be vulnerable and find different tactics. But I think most of the stuff that's out there in the men's health world, especially is just like sex, fitness, diet repeat in sports and not it's even, like not even good sex <laughs> yeah it's like here are the three here are the three positions you should do for da, da, da. here are the three positions like every month and i literally i've like scoured you know what i would assume to be reputable sources i've scoured like the indie low lowbrow you know zines and whatever but it's like no one is really i'm like what do y'all group chats look like i just i don't know what you found helpful in your journey um, to vulnerability, but I just think men's health is interesting, and I hope that it evolves because we're all—I mean, women included—are just so much more nuanced. But I feel like women are given the space to be in the depths of their emotions, yes. and men are just like not. Yes. Yeah, and I and I, I thought there's a—I had a, like this is a million dollar this is a million dollar idea, something where it brings together like like the intersection of trauma, fatherhood. Black men, maybe maybe faith, but like black men, fatherhood and trauma, put that together and that would be such a great resource. But then before that, before the father was like, yo, just where's the black men's health magazine? And it start and I, I what I've seen is like there's like these little projects that pop up, like, yo, we're giving haircuts, we're also talking about diabetes awareness. I'm like, what about the mental health? Or like we got this app right now that that talks about mental health, but it also talks about all these other things. I think that we get to acknowledge the fact that we are not a monolith and what that does, how that complicates things. Because mm-hmm. if we're a monolith, it'd be easy. Like, everybody just do this. But being a Black man means so many different things depending on where you are, where you're from, what you're doing. Like, I'll say this. What I'll say is this. I think that there are ways in which we in which we share. I think we just share differently. I think we call it something different. It's not always a heart-to-heart mm-hmm. opening up or the group text. I think... Sometimes we just share hard things with our friends and we don't call it like, oh, I just had a, it was like, it was really therapeutic. I will say I have seen a lot of narrative <laughs> online around black men feeling like their their partners are their therapists. And so like we make our partners our 
our therapist. And so I was like, your, your partner's not your therapist. That's, mm-hmm. that's, not, that's, not, that's not healthy. And so mm-hmm. I, think, I think what we have is we're trying to do so much and we got to make it smaller. We got to get into bite-sized pieces. First, yeah. work on thyself. Look at, the, look at the people that are around you. Take care of your own garden. What can you do in your community? What work has already happened, happened that just needs to be amplified? Are we okay with the brokenness that exists there? Like actual brokenness, not like, oh, little cracks in the, in the infrastructure. No, like broken open. Like things are just all jacked up. They're, they're mangled. The wires are exposed. The, mm-hmm. the secrets are out. Like things are just not okay. How do we reconcile with that? How do we, how do we get to know that? Stop making Black women do all the work. And brothers, yes. just step up. And go, yo! I don't know how to do this. Let me like, let me. I gotta. I don't know what. I don't know what I'm doing. And step up, not like in your community, like you know, like in some manly way. Just step up. Just step up and go. All right. I don't stepping up in a, way, in a sense of saying I don't know what to do. I don't know how to do this. Mm-hmm. I, I don't. There's no literature. I want to show up. But... I want to show up, but I don't know. Saying I don't know, I think is like literally the first step to this. Yeah. And so yeah. I do, but I I will say for access reasons, if a person does have access to the internet. One great way is just reading other people's stories. It's like mm-hmm. sitting in an AA meeting. Like hearing other people's mm-hmm. stories can be so healing and rehabilitating. So like just reading, listening to podcasts like this, where you're hearing somebody else who sounds like you might not be into what they're into because like that dude sounds mad corny and I'm like, cool. But like right. they said in their story, it sounds like something that I've experienced. Like finding mm-hmm. yourselves in a part of somebody's story can be, it can be life-changing because you might've spent your whole life never seen or hearing yourself anywhere or whenever, wherever you saw yourself, it was put in this negative way, right? You're dangerous. You're, you're angry. You're, you're only dressed up because you're going to church or because you're going to court. Like all those, all those terrible representations of us find mm-hmm. yourself in somebody who is going through what you're going through and who has found somewhat of a way through. See if you can connect with them. See if you can try to mimic those steps or just sit with the feeling that, wow, it's not just me. There is hope. Right. There's another way. And let that be an invitation to, to more things to happen. I think those ripples are also what's going to get us there. It's not going to be just, you know, the male version of Oprah, even though I would love to be Oprah one day. I talk about that all the time, but it's going to it's going to need to be in those small ways as well. Like like what you're doing right now, which is huge because you have no idea whose life you're changing just by hopping on the mic and interviewing these people who you've done so much research to find. So, yeah. yeah. Well, thank you. I I didn't ask for it, but you gave it to me. (laughs) I have two more questions. One, just thinking about that, how you mentioned how you moved so much and never, you know, growing up even weren't even in one place. How have you built community? You already have this like online community and you Mm. build people up also on Twitter a lot. I think you ask like a lot of thought provoking questions and just like, kind of check in on people in a way that filters through all the crap that can be on Twitter or on social. Mm. So yeah, I just want to know about how you kind of create community or how you how you find community. Man, you really do your homework. I'm in awe. I love it. It's so great. <laughs> it's so special. You <laughs> are special. <laughs> Somebody did all this research on my Twitter. That's been hard. I'm still work I'm still working on that. I'm still like I'm still figuring out my values. I'm figuring out like what I care about, what matters to me and you know, family, family first and foremost. And that's in like real real, not just like a old family and God, but like for real real. 
I think one thing has been joining this men's group that I go to every Wednesday, Oak Hills Church, this men's Bible group. And I'm complicated, right? I have all these types of issues with the church and, the, you know, any church really. But we sit around and this group is actually, talk, it's a dad group. So we're just talking about stuff with dads, like stuff that we go through. So it's just great to hear from other people from different backgrounds and what they're going through. And I'm able to just check in. So that's been a great way to have community. I started that when I was in Baltimore. And now that we're in San Antonio, which is where the church is, I'm able to still be part of the group because it's all virtual. So I think that finding a group, finding people online to connect with in that way. But for me, my homework right now is just to really figure out what I care about right now in my life. And that pushing me towards what I need. Like I need a new therapist right now. So what therapist has these particular values and qualities that I need, right? Just a couple, Mm -hmm. just put them on a post-it note. Mm -hmm. What people do I want in my life? Just a couple, right? It's it's not like it used to be for me where it was like, yo, if I got less than a hundred friends, like like my life is trash. Like I just need two two people, just two Mm -hmm. people, right? Like that would be icing on the cake. And then pouring into my marriage and my life with my daughter, and then with online and social media, I've approached it differently. Like for a little while, I had my account set to private because of I felt like I was still focused on how can I go viral again? And I had to finally unpin my viral tweet, like somebody suggested. Unpin your viral tweet, y'all. Nobody doesn't know what, what tweet you went viral for. Okay, I guess I'll do mm-hmm. that. But like, what can I do with this app? And really, people need to be reminded of like dropping their shoulders and breathing. But then I like to reach out and go like, who needs prayer? Like what's going on with you? Or like, let's check in. And I find so much value in being able to do that online. So like just doing things that I care about, not because they'll bring me fame or acclaim, but because it, because it's meaningful to me and because it's necessary. I think we need to have people out there just, just doing that. When you are putting something out there, especially content, you are impacting people who might ever have heard that message. Yeah. Yeah. So the last question, I end all my shows with this, but what brings you peace? The knowledge of what God has brought me through and knowing that if I got through that, I'm going to get through the day. Um, that gratitude, that appreciation, that acknowledgement, um, that's what gives me peace. Beyond Ourselves is an original series produced and hosted by me, Taylor Camille. A variety of the series artwork shared here and on our Instagram at Beyond Ourselves are created by Carmen Johns and Sierra Hood. My hope is that these listenings have left you with a warm heart and an even cooler mind. I hope you are left feeling able to seek peace in the spaces and places you may find yourself in. If you're interested in being on the pod or have any compelling leads, please shoot us an email at info at beyondourselves.com and subscribe and share if you haven't already.